Welcome to episode 157. Do you know why you do what you do? Why does your life always seem to have stressful events going on? Why do you always default to chips or crisps or chocolate or ice cream when you know they're not good for you? Why does the weight always come back after you finish with the latest new diet? It worked for a while, but it all came back. They often say that the biggest predictor of the future is the past, which, let's be honest, in health, that's neither motivating nor inspiring. But what if you could dissolve the habits and cycles that you have in your life and in your diet that meant you weren't stuck anymore, weren't sick, and weren't overweight? And it stayed that way in the long term. On today's episode, we dive into the balance and polarity of both the universe and your body, and then how to shift what isn't working and know exactly how to rewire neurons that help you maintain healthy new behaviors, healthy eating routines, and daily wellness practices that will last a lifetime. If you're needing some sustainable long-term health solutions, this is a major piece of the puzzle. So, let's dive right in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? We've got an epic show for you today, and as the year draws to a close, there is no falter in my mission to coach 250 men and women to lose weight and be their healthiest self before the end of 2021. Now, I'm pretty excited about today's guest and maybe even a little bit nervous because we have a heavyweight of the personal development world. I would like to introduce you to Dr. John Demartini, whom is a polymath and a world-renowned human behavior expert. He has over four decades of research across multiple disciplines, and by multiple, I mean literally hundreds. His work has been described by students as the most comprehensive body of work and wisdom of the highest and most valuable order. Dr. Demartini's mission and vision is to share knowledge and wisdom that empowers you to become a master of your own life and destiny. He's an internationally published author, a global educator, and the founder of the Demartini Method, a revolutionary tool in modern psychology. His signature program, The Breakthrough Experience, has been delivered in 64 countries to over 100,000 students to date. Also, Dr. Demartini is the author of over 40, yes, 40 self-development books and manuscripts which have been translated into 36 languages. And you may know him from his work on the film, which you can catch on Netflix, called The Secret. And it's just amazing that he's here with me today on the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. A tremendous and warm welcome to the show, John. How are you? I'm doing great and thank you for having me. Oh, I'm very, very happy to have you. So, I would love to just dive into your background a little bit and get some context on who John Demartini is. So, as one of the most prolific, globally successful human behavior specialists, I would love it if you could take us back to before this this journey began and, and sort of what was happening in your life that led to the penny dropping and what was that penny, so to speak? Well, I'll, I'll give you the... Shorter version. (laughs) I had learning challenges as a child. I was told in first grade I would never be able to read, write, communicate, never amount to thing, never go very far in life Mm -hmm. because I couldn't read. I had dyslexia and a speech impediment and an arm and leg leg deformity. I um, ended up making it through school with asking kids questions, the smart kids anyway. And that helped me until I was about 12, elementary school. But when I hit the next level, I uh, didn't have those smart kids. We moved into a small town with a small community and um, ended up dropping out of school, failing and dropping out of school. Mm -hmm. So I left home at 13. I was a street kid. At 14, I hitchhiked from Houston, Texas to California as a long-haired hippie surfer kid. (laughs) And then down in Mexico... And I wanted to go surfing because I wasn't going to make it in school. I might as well go surfing. And I was pretty good on a surfboard. At 15, I made it over to Hawaii and lived under a bridge and then a park bench and a bathroom and a abandoned car and kept social climbing until I made it to a high-quality tent. And I surfed until I was 
there until I was 18. But right before my 18th birthday, I got a bit of a setback. I had a, I nearly died. I had received strychnine poisoning and ended up having my diaphragm stop on me when I was surfing a big wave, almost drowned, and had symptoms of strychnine for quite a while. Wow. In the recovery of that, I was led to a health food store to try to eat quality foods and fast and drink juices and all kinds of things. People told me that would help. That led me to a yoga class where I met a teacher named Paul C. Bragg. And that night, this one man in an hour said things in a way that I never had heard him before and got me to believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and someday be intelligent. And I had an epiphany that night that I wanted to learn how to read, learn how to speak properly, and become intelligent and want to be a teacher like this man had done, because he was so inspiring. I said, I'd love to be able to do what this guy does, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that turned me on to a quest to eventually go take a GED, high school equivalency, and eventually pass that. So I had me high school you know, equivalent. Mm -hmm. I then went on to try to go to school. I failed at first. And then I had this real major setback and I got such a low grade that I almost gave up. And my mother said to me when she saw me crying on a floor and wanting to give up, she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and philosopher and travel the world like you dream, or whether you go back to Hawaii and ride giant waves, or you return to the streets, I just want to let you know your father and I are going to love you no matter what. And the, the unconditional love that she had in that moment inspired me, brought tears to my eyes. And my hand went into a fist. I looked up and I saw the vision that I saw the night was with Paul Bragg standing in front of a million people speaking, which is painted in my office today. Wow. And I uh, said to myself, I'm going to mass this thing called learning and reading and studying. I'm going to mass this thing called teaching and healing and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes and travel whatever distance and pay whatever price to get my service of love across the world. And I'm not going to let any human being stop me from this, no, not even myself. I got up, I hugged my mom, I went in my, my, my little uh, bedroom. I got the dictionary out and I started memorizing 30 words a day until my vocabulary was growing and strong enough to understand the meaning in words. And I started passing school. And then I started rising in school. And then I just was, every day I was working what worked, what didn't work in learning. And I just kept refining what I was doing until I went on to be you know, a highly adept student and a scholar and a polymath. And here, 49 years later, I research, write, travel, teach every day. I read every day. I write every day. And I travel every day. And and I get to be with you today. And so this has been a dream since I was 17. And I'm 67 now. Well, you definitely mastered the uh, intelligence piece. So I'm glad that somebody caused you to believe that that was possible. So um, I'm curious, you said in there that um, you you felt that your mission and part of that mission was spreading love and healing. So you became a doctor of chiropractic. Is that correct? Yes. I went pre-med in school because that's what they had. Mm -hmm. That's all they had. And then I, um, but I was never really keen on the idea of, you know, giving people drugs or taking away their organs. I, um, mm -hmm. I had this sense that there was a, because Paul Bragg was a naturopath, I had this natural approach interest. I had more of an interest on nutrition and psychology and natural healing. And I just felt like that was more my path, even though there was only pre-med school. And then I came across the book called The Chiropractic Story when I was hiking in Peru in 1975. Right. And um, I went, there it is. And so I chose that as a, a pathway. And I remember going, I was in the pre-med honor society with Dr. Kaminsky. And I remember telling her, I'm going to be a chiropractor. And she asked me, what medical school are you going to want to go to? And I said, I'm not going to medical school. I'm going to chiropractic college. And she was just, what? How dare you do that? You're one <laughs> of the brightest students we got in the class now. And you're going to do that. And I knew at that time that I'd made the right decision. I just knew the way she responded. I said, because <laughs> I just felt like, there, was, there were two schools of thought in Greek philosophy when it comes to healing. There was the Nidian school, which was external, 
that the cause of all illness is outside you and the cause of all solutions is outside you. And there was a cone school that was, it's all inside. It's your perception, your decisions, and your actions. And that was the one that I felt empowered people mm-hmm. instead of taking away their power. So that was the one I chose. And I'm so grateful I went that path. I, yeah. I learned so much in that pathway that I use today that, uh, and helped, you know, so many, I mean, a lot of people as a result of doing that. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, amazing. I'm I'm curious. So for myself, I originally started uh, working as a scientist in a cancer hospital. And um, for me, I would go walk through clinic, walk through the hospital every single day and realize that um, and it it didn't take very long for me to realize that no one was talking about the cause of disease and that almost everybody was overweight. And observing that fact, I, I then became a nutritionist and then realized that Everybody basically knows what to eat, that it's actually the human behavior and the human psychology piece that people need help with. That was the journey that I have been on um, and and I'm very much still on. Is that what happened with you with chiropractic? Did you go into chiropractic and then realize, oh, they don't need help with the physicality, they need help with the psychology? Well, when I was in chiropractic, I was already into the psychology. I already started on that journey, but I wanted to work with the mind body and I wanted to work with physiology. I want to be applied physiologist and applied psychologist. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I still do presentations. I just did a presentation last week on applied physiology and psychology. I wrote a textbook. It's about a thousand pages on hundreds of conditions and the psychology and the distresses that lead to these. And so I'm still fascinated by that. So I went into chiropractic fully co- cognizant of that. And I also remember I hired my first assistant before I even opened up my practice. She started working in my apartment, helping me help people because I was not supposed to do that, but I did anyway. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I told her, I said, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to build a practice. We're going to scale it up. We're going to then I'm going to be teaching people how to go and do clinical work and teaching people how to do that. And I'm going to then travel around the world. I told her that I knew that from the time I was 17, I was going to travel the world and teach." But I wanted to understand the physiology and be able to put it in practical application too. And exactly at the time I scheduled, I was already, by 1983, I was already uh, skilled at my practice. In 18 months, we went from a simple little office of 970 square feet with just one assistant, her, to five doctors, 12 staff members, and a 5,000 square foot office 18 months later. Wow. So I scaled it up. And then... Um, Everybody wanted to know, what on earth have you done and how did you do this? And that led me to speaking to conferences in different health fields. And because I had clinical application and also some business comprehension at the time, I devoured that. Um, That led me to speaking to more and more audiences and eventually outside even the health profession, because the health profession that I was in was only 100,000 doctors. And then all of them together was less than a million. And I go, I'm here to reach billions of people, not millions. So I decided, let's go. Let's get out and hit every industry with the same principles that will apply to application in your own mind and your body and your and also in helping a business. Because the same principles that apply to physiology and master that also apply to organizations. The same negentropic forces of life are essential for a business organization. Same exact principles are there. So I um I've been blessed to work in governments and corporates and individuals and sport teams and you name it. And from that world of health, and and obviously your practice growing so rapidly, what was different about the way that you delivered that chiropractic care or the care that your, your workplace delivered? What was different about what you did compared to the conventional? Well, when I first opened up my practice, I realized I was doing a whole lot of stuff. You know, when you got one assistant, you're doing most everything except for what they're doing. And I realized that, you know, I went to nearly 10 years of college to do this. <laughs> Some of it just seemed like I was not, I was majoring in minor stuff. And I went out and got a time management book called The Time Trap by Alan McKenzie. And I read that and dog-eared it and underlined it. And, and I created a tool, a form that I still use today, companies all over the place, and I made a list of everything I was doing in a day, every detailed action I did in a day over about a three-month period. What might I do in a day during for those three months? And I made a list of it personal and professionally. 
home and at office. And then I made a, next to it, I put down how much does it produce per hour? What is the actual productivity? Because if I'm not helping anybody, it's not producing and people aren't going to pay for it. I'm just doing a bunch of stuff that's not producing. Mm -hmm. And then I made a list of that and I prioritized it. Then I made a list of how much meaning does it have, a one to 10 scale, and I prioritized it. Then I put down how much would it cost to hire somebody to do that at the same standard. And then I prioritized the spread between what it produced versus what it would cost. And then I've looked at how much actual time is actually spent. And then I finally prioritized that. And then I broke all that into layers and I hired people to and delegated all the things underneath and got on to doing the absolute highest priority thing, which was for me getting out and leveraging myself through speaking on radio, television, media, newspapers, and getting messages out there so I could reach larger numbers of people. And then engaging the, 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 through education, them to want to take care of their life. And then we generated, you know, lots of patients that way. And that's when I hired all the doctors. And then I, I was training people on, on health and I was training doctors on how to manage health and educating them on all my methods and principles and, you know, from nutrition to physical things and, and um, just kept growing from that. And that's what scaled it up. Um, and I was on a relentless pursuit of, serving ever greater numbers of people. And I'm still on that pursuit today, just as inspired today about that as I was then. And um, except now my vehicle for healing, I'm still in the healing arts, but I'm now healing organizations, governments, uh, whatever might be needing some sort of healing, individuals or groups, doesn't matter. Because the same principles are there. So that's why I'm still a healer and teacher today. And I think a healer is a teacher anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's you. You made a comment in there before that was um, that our businesses and organizations reflect our physiology. And I'm curious to to understand your perspective on in this. Why do you think in this world we we went down the path of externalization, uh, externalizing the problem, the pill for an ill pharmaceutical model that. I'm not wrong or nothing's wrong with me. It's wrong, Something's wrong with the environment. Uh, why do you think that has been the main narrative for, well, I guess 150 years that mainstream medicine has been driving that message? Oh, boy, that's a great question. You know, 100 to two or 300,000 years ago, depending on the anthropological belief, man was nomadic. And um, he found that she, he and she found men and women are whatever your androgyny is today, um, they found that working individually was, you didn't survive as easy if you worked with groups. So small clans were built and families were built. And then as a result of that, larger groups, and then eventually specialties emerged. And then when we started using the, the, the planting of, you know, planting cultures, uh, specialties emerged even faster. And so now we have a person that makes houses, another one that makes baskets, another one does this. And, 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 and the more specialties emerge, and the less you became a generalist, and the more you became a specialist, the more you depend on the people. Mm -hmm. And so even in the earliest times, if you were banished from the group, you didn't survive. And so you are frightened of being independent and think for yourself. You're more like mirror neurons trying to fit in and copy people and Make sure you please them. And as a result of it, you inculcate and bring in other people that you admire as values, which cloud the clarity of what's meaningful to you. And then you become part of the collective herd instead of the individual person that is herd. And as a result of it, um, we cloud ourselves, have unfulfillment. And whenever we're not living by our very highest value, the most authentic us, the blood glucose and oxygen goes from the forebrain executive center down into the amygdala, the desire center. And the desire center is avoiding pain, seeking pleasure, avoiding predators, seeking prey. It's in a survival mode, and it wants to avoid difficulties and seek ease. And so it looks for a quick fix. And instead of being intrinsically called an action that's spontaneous when you live by high bias, you become externally motivated by rewards and punishments. And so the external world for the masses became the Nidian schools model. But for those individuals that want to be self-actualized and want to have an unborrowed vision and be unique and make a bigger difference and take command of their life, which is fewer than many, they're the ones that went the 
the Cone School and said, I, I want to be accountable for my own well-being. And they end up shooting up in socioeconomics and becoming fewer in number, but greater in leadership. And so the masses are usually the ones that go, as you say, they're because they're unfulfilled, they fill their body up with food. Mm-hmm. Because they're unfulfilled, they fill their house up with consumerism. And those are symptoms of unfulfillment manifesting because they're trying to be somebody they're not instead of authentic, inspired by who they are. Yeah, I, that makes total sense. And I guess yeah, I, I work a lot with emotional eating and I'm sure you've done a lot of work in that space as well. Um, and yeah, there's always a story or a narrative or something that we're trying to hide or bury. And I, th- I think you talked about the amygdala there being the desire center. From a human evolution standpoint, why do you think that amygdala uh, evolved to be that way? And why are we so easily susceptible to slipping into that if it's not in favor of our ultimate human experience? Well, actually, it is um, in, in different contexts. Very, very early in the evolvement of species, there was a thing called, um, you know, camouflage. You know, you have an animal out there in the food chain. And it has a prey that camouflages it so it doesn't get eaten. Mm-hmm. And you camouflage yourself so you don't get seen so you can eat it. <laughs> and so camouflages gave rise to a, a state called uh, perdolia and, and what they call, uh, you know, where they, they see patternisty in things. So if you, if, if we've all been in a bathroom where there's marble and seen faces of images of humans and animals in the marble. And we've seen it maybe in clouds. We see images of faces or we see it in trees or something. And what this is, is called patternisty. And what this is, is a survival mechanism for us to be in nature in random uh, information, to be able to see and make sure there's not an animal or a face of something that could be a prey or predator in case we need food or we get got to get away from it. We also create pareidolia, which is to put a face on it. And then we put animisty in it to make sure it's alive. And then we create false positives in order to accentuate our adrenaline to be able to run fast enough to capture it or avoid it. And um, this leads to us having a subjective biased interpretation of reality um, that skews things to make sure that we have enough adrenaline to run for it with infatuation or avoid it with, with, from the predator with resentment. And we create these impulses and instincts that are survival to make sure we have food and we don't get eaten. So anytime we're not doing what's most important to us, where we're objective and balanced, we go into a subjective mode of survival that causes this to go into accentuation. And our ghrelin and our leptin, which are basically our, you know, our hormones that regulate these, these uh, behaviors and eating behaviors, um, are thrown off because of the subjective bias. We're literally seeing the world not as it is, but as we perceive it is as a survival mode. And we accentuate these hormones which causes us to overeat or undereat, you know, kind of bulimia or anorexia kind of models. And we go into these uh, skewed things and we get volatilities. And then we feel guilty because we've gone one or the other. And then we create the licensee effect. Um, so we try to do something really good. And then we feel, okay, now I'm proud. And then we end up doing the licensing effect to get shamed again. And we go into this yo-yo cycle and then we people go through there and and then if you now add the idea that, well, a cause is out there and the, the cause is out there, the solution is out there, it's like a religion. You know, you blame the devil and you look for a savior all the time. And, instead of, and there's the magic bullet, you know, the magic pill that's going to make it all better. And, uh, but the real truth is, unless we go and live by our highest values, what's most meaningful, unless we go back into objectivity where it calms down the amygdala, with glutamate and gavit calms it down and mitigates the volatilities of it. We're not going to have a stable mindset and a stable eating set and have an objective view on it. So we realize there's nothing to be threatened by. Most of us are living in, in a distress level and anything we infatuate, we fear the loss of and anything we resent, we fear the gain of. And so we live with these fears and survivals instead of actually mastering our life and any area of our life. We don't empower. We increase the probability of going into our amygdala. And if you don't educate yourself on how to empower your life, you know, you're going to be overpowered by the world around you and going to be externally driven. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I know from just absorbing your content for years now that you talk a lot about accepting the fact that there's pros and cons, there's good and evil within us, within everything. Um, and I've, I've had a um, psychologist on the show before who used to work um, in the 90s, the 80s and the 90s with food manufacturers when they were changing their packaging to resemble fruit in nature. He was a part of that psychology, psychological thinking. And then after being a part of the sugar industry in what you could maybe term its most evil evil years. Um, but he realized, he became obese and realized, oh, wow. And now he runs binge eating and sugar addiction programs. So I'm curious, these people in our society that uh, take advantage of, of people falling into this amygdala state or defaulting to this amygdala state, are they the evil in our world or are they opportunists or like why are we so susceptible to being taken advantage of? And you could even argue, and whilst there's good and evil in everything, you know, the world right now is experiencing the the push with like vaccinations and COVID and the fear response that is being injected by governments around the world into people responding in, from their amygdala to, you know, grab medications and behave in particular ways. So these people that are at the top of the food chain, or, or at least in, in a capacity or in a place to be able to control people. Is that the evil of the world presenting itself? Well, there's no evil and there's no good, ultimately. Mm-hmm. As John Milton says, you make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of a heaven. This is all fabricated in human minds based on what they think is going to support or challenge your survival. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it's not inherently anything. It's just what you make it. You know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you can turn a heaven into a hell or a hell out of a heaven as Milton said, easily by asking different sets of questions. Because when you're infatuated with something, you're conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides. It has downsides. Just date the person for a few months, you'll find them. <laughs> <laughs> and if you resent somebody and you see you're more conscious of the downsides and not conscious of the upsides, just hang in there. You'll find out that they also have upsides. There is no inherent one-sided individual. Those are false, immediate gratifying labels that have no basis in any truth. Mm-hmm. So it's not that the, the, these these bad guys and they're good guys and innocent victims, none of that, that whole model is externally run. Mm-hmm. What we have is, an, in, in a, is a beautiful feedback system that any area of our life we don't empower, we attract somebody to overpower us to kick our ass in order to get us back empowered. You know, and, and, uh, and by the way, that that is an acronym for Awakened Spiritual Service, if that's offensive to somebody. <laughs> but the point is, but the point is that... Um, you know, we if, if you don't empower yourself intellectually, you'll be told what to think. If you don't empower yourself in business, you'll be told what to do. If you don't empower yourself in finance, you'll be told what you're worth. And you'll end up on Social Security or something. If you don't empower yourself in, in relationship, you'll be doing honeydew crap around the house. If you don't empower yourself in social, you'll be told propaganda misinformation. If you don't empower yourself physically, you'll be told what drugs to take and what organs to remove. And if you don't empower yourself spiritually, you'll be living in some sort of a geocentric world from Aristotle that's 2,000 years old or more. So instead of us waking up and realizing that we're accountable to empower our lives and to educate ourselves with facts, we are vulnerable for immediate gratifying fictions and keep ourselves disempowered. And then what happens is we're now, as a result of that disempowerment, searching for immediate gratification. And so somebody comes along and says, okay, that's what people want. We'll get a market for it. So it's no more them doing it to us as we're doing it to them and Mm -hmm. we're doing it to us. It's just a feedback system to let us know because, frankly, um, I don't have people telling me what to do. I don't – I I look for objective information. I've I've empowered all those areas. Mm -hmm. I'm financially independent. I have a global business. I'm intelligent. I've educated myself. I'm socially influential. I'm physically fit for 67 I'm inspired by what I do, and I've got a stable global family dynamic. So I went out and empowered all those, and I don't find anybody out there stopping me from doing what I want in life. I'm not feeling like I'm run by anybody. I've got it all delegated. They take care of it, and I just go about my business doing what I love doing. So it's not that they're doing it or anybody's doing anything to you. It's you not taking command of your life. And Hmm. all the symptoms and the frustrations of not doing that are going to create symptoms, including obesity and overeating and and feeling like you're a victim. And all that is just disempowered thinking. And so, yeah, we can always blame the big guy. But, you know, when you look out there and you point your finger, it was Epictetus, the Greek philosopher, who said, you know, when you start on your journey, you blame things externally. When you go a little farther in your journey, you blame yourself. 
And then when you're finally at the well aware, you realize there's nothing to blame. It's just everything is working to help you master your life, but you're misinterpreting it. And once you do and take command of your life, nothing stops you. Yeah. I'm more interested in empowering people there. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. If if people are screaming for an external solution, the person that provides that solution is likely going to create a solution that serves their highest self best. Both people are trying to get on. Yeah, both are wanting their immediate gratification, and and you know, uh, you know, when Microsoft, I've gone around the world and asked, you know, how many of you ever used Microsoft Windows? Every hand goes up. Every hand goes up in the world around the world on Microsoft Windows almost. Well, no wonder he's a billionaire. He found something that everybody benefited by. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, is what you're selling benefiting people? That's the question. Is it got more advantage and disadvantage in their perception? And is there long-term effects of that? That's that's what nature eventually finds out. Oh, now we find there's long-term disadvantages. And eventually that levels the playing field. And what makes profit sometimes loses profit when all of a sudden it finds out whether well, there's now side effects or whatever. So nature automatically accounts for this and, and edits things that aren't long-term ultimate advantages of evolution, of human, human development. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to blame the, the pharmaceutical companies or the governments on that because, frankly, they don't run my life. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've got, I, I make connections and, and learn how to do politics and learn how to do things and everything else to get what I want in life. And so I, I don't, uh, I have nobody to blame out there. I don't find any, I haven't found anything stopping me from empowering all seven areas of life. That's why I try to teach people how to do it. And the ones that do it, they get the same results. Mm -hmm. So it's not out there. It's, it's what you decide to do with what's out there. You have control of your perception, decisions, and actions. That's it. So take command of your perceptions, balance them out. Take command of your decisions, act wisely. Prioritize your life, fill it with high priority things. You'll get in your executive center. You won't go in your amygdala. You won't be vulnerable for immediate gratification that people are selling you the fantasy of one sidedness. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. That's uh, bringing, coming back to that or the seven areas of life and, and obviously my bias is obviously going to be towards health in this particular conversation but... A lot of people have challenges with that emotional eating piece with especially after you know a year and a half of lockdown and maybe this is the first time they've been in, introduced to your concepts um, and maybe they've even got some illnesses or disease going on. So what is where would people start to begin to find out their value system in order to be able to make different changes in the relationship with food, nutrition, health and begin dissolving the health complications that they might have right now? Oh, I'm glad you asked that one. I'd like to share a story of somebody because I believe that, that health is a strategy and disease is a strategy. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to make a statement. Yep. Whatever's going down in your physiology is strategic. It may be conscious or unconscious, but it's strategic. So let me give you a fun story. I was filming for a reality TV show in, in uh, Universal Studios in Hollywood and um, area, California area. And they asked me to transform 12 people's lives in 24 hours. So I had two hours per individual. 
No pressure. <laughs> that was yeah. It was, it was amazing to 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 pull that off in twenty four hours. Now, what is interesting is one of the ladies that came in there walked in with a giant box and another bag on top of that, carrying it in, and says, "Oh, hello, everybody! I brought us some food in case we went we get hungry." And then went on to eating everything. A week's worth of food. I, I couldn't have eaten that in a week. It was more than a week's worth. She ate it all. And her need, the, the reason why she was there is because they wanted me to transform her overeating issue because she was obese and overeating and everything else and just eating like unbelievable amount of food. And so I sit with her and I asked her the first question. Okay, what's the benefit you're getting out of eating? And she says, it's not, it's killing me. Look at me, I'm overweight. I can't do that. I, 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 I stop. It didn't answer my question. What's the benefit of getting out of eating? I can't think of any. I don't know any. I don't know. I, I just stop. What's the benefit of getting out of eating? Every decision a human being makes is based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or disadvantage at any moment in time. So somehow in your, in your strategic mind, there's more advantages in keeping weight on and eating than there is not to. So what's the benefit of getting there? So you become cognizant of the unconscious motives. You're going to be spinning your wheels. And after 10 times of going back and forth with her and her dodging it, she finally said, okay, everybody in my family is large. If I'm not large, I don't feel like I'm part of my family. Mm, there we go. Okay. And she got a little watery. Eyed. Let's write that down. Then I, I said, what else? My sister, when I was young, was bigger than me and pushed me around. And I swore I would never be smaller than her so she could never push me around again. Good. Right on. What's another benefit? She said, um, hmm. And then a, a big one came. A huge one came. She said, a number of years back, when I was just turning around 1920, I went on a really strange, you know, fasting almost situation where I lost 45 pounds. And I could have lost 145 probably, but I lost 45 pounds. I started getting a bit of a figure. It's the first time I actually thought there's a bit of a figure there. Mm. And a guy hit on it. The guy approached me. I never had a guy show interest in me until then. And I didn't know what infatuation was. I didn't know anything, but I actually thought this guy was in love with me. I was so naive. And when we went out, I made love with him. Now, the next day, I never saw him again. That night I saw him and never saw him again. He disappeared. And six weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. Wow. Now, I was Catholic. I was Catholic. And I'm now having sex out of wedlock. I'm now having to decide, do I keep a baby with somebody I don't want to even see again? Or do I have an abortion? Mm -hmm. I had the toughest, most scary decisions in my life. And I was surrounded by everybody with all kinds of belief systems and guilt trips and this and that and all that. And I finally got an abortion. Wow. There and it she is. said, and I've probably felt guilty all my life about that. And I swore I would never be put in that situation again. So I made sure I never lost the weight again. I said, now we're getting somewhere. That's the third or fourth benefit. What's another benefit? Well, I'm involved in, believe it or not, presentations. And from the boobs up, I look pretty good. You got beautiful thick hair and nice boobs. And they're down. So I, when I'm on television, I'm only showing from the boobs up. But if I lose weight, my skin sags, my arms start to sag, my skin is too loose. And so I make sure I don't have sagging skin. I keep my skin firm. And the only way to do it is to keep eating. Right. And we went through, and I made her answer that 75 times. And we wrote down stars next to the ones that brought tears to her eyes. Because mm -hmm. then she realized deep down inside, at the very end of this list, she said, I really don't have an intention of losing weight, do I? I said, not with the perceptions you have currently. There's no way. you Because you perceive there's more drawbacks and more pain associated than pleasure if you were to lose weight. 
She goes, okay. She was humbled. And she knew it yeah. deep inside, but she didn't want to face it. Mm-hmm. She needed somebody to help her bring it out. Yeah, I had to bring it out. I had to hold her accountable in those two hours. And then I said, now, once we have these benefits, unless you have a viable alternative way of getting those same benefits without having to eat to get them, you're going to use eating because that works. Congratulations. You found one thing, eating, that solved all those problems. And that was a beautiful strategy and it worked. Kept you from getting pregnant again, made sure you screen out guys. It made sure you get your job position. You, you, you focused on your hair and your boobs. And then you, and you, you still paid start of your family. So how do we stay part of the family without having to eat? What else is common to the family besides just size? Mm-hmm. And we had to dig for four or five alternatives. And we did that for each of those 75 different benefits. What were the alternative ways of getting those same benefits without having to eat to do it? Then we identified what her values were, her hierarchy of values, the thing that's most important that she spontaneously does, because that's what takes you in the executive center to govern you. And then we listed the highest priority value, the highest priority alternatives that showed up in all of them, the top ones. And we linked those to her highest values. And once we did, her brain has a neuroplastic pathway to now go to get what I'm wanting in life, I can go this path. And then I went and de-linked the old path, eating. What's the drawback of eating to get those now? What's the detriment of eating now? Because if you give somebody how it's killing them and it's bad that they're doing anything else and they don't have a viable alternative way, you create anxiety and more guilt and then they go into further the amygdala. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a viable alternative before they can do that. And then when I got that done, I explained to him, now we have those strategies. Mm -hmm. We have an alternative. We stacked up the benefits. We literally stacked up the benefits of doing the alternatives more so than the other because that way the neuroplasticity goes in that new path. It's like an operant conditioning. Then we go through and find their subdiction. I've not ever seen an addiction to something without a subdiction. And a subdiction is a memory that's extremely painful that they're dissociating from and trying to get a quick fix to compensate for that unfulfillment that's running around ruminating in their brain. And this was the issue with the, the abortion and the baby. And so we had to go in there and clear that and all the authorities of all the, the hip, hypocritical individuals that have imposed ideas on her that live in a moral hypocrisy. We had to clear that. And that was a, another little project that took more than I had my time for there. And I had to do that separately. And then what we did is we went in there and started clearing out everything that she thought she's done or not done that's not worthy of love. And anybody that she's been judging, because anytime you judge somebody else, if you put somebody on a pedestal, you'll minimize yourself. And you put somebody in a pit, you'll exaggerate yourself and you won't be yourself. And whenever you're not being yourself, the amygdala comes online because you're in thrival, survival instead of thrival. And we had to go start working on clearing that. And we worked by that. And then we have to give her some purpose because if you don't have something meaningful and something that's deeply purposeful that you want to dedicate your energies to that's bigger and more important than you eating, you're going to go and quickly go and fill yourself up because you're unfulfilled in life. And then we looked at some of her nutrition and looked at what educator on eating. She didn't have any education on eating. She was eating unbelievable stuff you would never eat normally. Mm-hmm. I would never eat. And, and then we started to make sure she had proper nutrition because there was not getting proper nutrition. And that has a lot to do with the feedback and homeostatic mechanisms of chemistry in the brain. So that put her on a new path to reduce weight. But until she realized what she was doing and had alternatives, she was making sure she kept the weight on. No matter what you told her, she was going to make sure she kept weight on. I've seen people that have low thyroid, making sure the metabolism is low just to make sure they keep the weight on to protect themselves from having an affair. I had a woman that one time that had an affair because her husband was focused on work and she had an affair and then she felt guilty and she said, oh my God, I'll destroy my family and then put on weight to protect herself from ever having an affair again and to find out if her husband still loved her. It was an unbelievable strategy that she had. I had another woman that was a, a lawyer, a lawyer that was that was losing clients because the second she was hot, she was a pretty lady. And and the guys were like, whoa. And the wives were jealous and didn't want the husbands and would cancel it. Right. So what she did, she gained weight, cut her hair, made herself look frumpy just to make sure she wouldn't lose clients. I'm not even realizing why she did it. And we found out that once she invited the, the spouse and made sure the wife was always with the client, she didn't have to do it. And she dropped weight immediately. 
it was amazing because there's always a strategy sitting in there. And, you know, many times people want to blame things, their physiology. I got it this, I got it that. But even the thyroid gland, many times it, it comes from the thyroglossal duct. And if you're not speaking up and you're repressing what you want to say, you shut down the thyroid hormone. And if you speak up and share what's inside you and allow yourself to express what's meaningful, the thyroid goes back up, the temperatures go up. So there's lots of strategic systems unconsciously that people are playing in in this area called eating. And you know it because you work with it every day. Oh, absolutely. And there's, I think there's some profound stories you've just shared. So thank you for that. And I think listeners will be definitely either looking in the mirror right now and asking them some themselves some of those questions to peel that that emotional onion, so to speak. Um, I'm curious from uh, going back to the physiology of it and, and maybe the neurology, when we, um, when we will start building these new habits or changing these behaviors, what, what's the sticking point? Like, because I know, like, even physically, our old habits are, you know, really thick and strong when it comes to the neurology. And they've been, we've been, you know, going along those neurological highways for years. And so they're really dense and strong as neurons. And then this new idea, as logical and intellectual as it, as it makes sense to be, practicing can actually feel quite difficult because those neurons are so thin and so new and so unfamiliar to both our body and our identity. So what's the sticking point to get people to, to that crossroad and not default into that amygdala response and, response and then continue down the path that is so unfamiliar? Well, there's a thing called a Hebbian rule in neurology. And the Hebbian rule that any time two neurons fire together, they tend to wire together and they tend to myelinate more each time they're firing. Mm -hmm. And so the survival neurons are larger in diameter and because they're there for emergency, they fire quicker than the executive function ones. So when you myelinate new pathways, you can't just come up with this is the benefit and that's it. I've sometimes put 200 links, 200 benefits in place and just keep myelinating and keep myelinating until they get tears of gratitude on that new path. And I keep myelinating again. I don't stop at a few things that's, that's still just logical. That won't do anything. Mm -hmm. It's got to be so ingrained and so myelinated and so path that the mind is now that. And that's, that's not hard to do. It's just be patient to do it. And you got to hold them accountable. They won't do it on their own. For sure. And very seldom do they do it on their own. You hold them accountable until they see so many benefits. They're in tears of gratitude on that new pathway and so many drawbacks of the old pathway that their brain is now myelinated differently. And you can, in literally 200 milliseconds, when you change a new pathway, little spines are starting to grow on dendrites and it's starting a new pathway. It, it's, it can be done. But if you intellectually go, okay, there's more benefits to here, a few benefits, it's not do, it won't do anything. Mm-hmm. You have to go and re- really make links, really make links. And it's got to be in your highest values. You have to be able to perceive because every decision you make is based on what you believe will give the greatest advantage or disadvantage to what you value most. And you've got to see that this is a more efficient path in your brain and feel it through that path. And when you see that, it'll change. It's not, it's not hard to do it. It's, it, we make it hard because we have an unrealistic expectation that just telling them a few benefits is going to do it. They have to come out and bring it out of themselves and see it until they have tears of gratitude on a new pathway mm-hmm. and truly see way more advantages on that pathway. When they do, it's not intellectual anymore. It's a new pathway. Yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. So just just keep going until it's wired, basically. It's wired. And, and it's anything else. And that means you're, re, you're redoing the habit on the spot. And this may take, you know, 200 answers. That lady, I, when, I, when, she, when she said, I can't think of any benefit of why I'm doing this, that's BS. <laughs> There's unconscious information there. Bring it conscious. See, whenever somebody sees a pleasure without a pain, they go into their amygdala. Anytime they see a pain without a pleasure, they go into the amygdala because it's a fight, fight or flight, or rest or digest me- mechanism. But if they see both pain and pleasure and they see both sides, if I go to the moment when all of a sudden they get the pleasure of eating and I show them where the pain is and I make them actually become aware of the pain in that moment, at that moment where the pain is, the guilt and the chains and all the things that are there in that moment, so there's not separated, the brain doesn't see pleasure anymore. It sees it now neutral. You know, the banking system, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Go for it. <laughs> the banking system, I, I, I studied a little bit about the banking system of the years. 
And the banking system, bankers, not all bankers, but people in the highest level of banking knew one thing, that if we give out a credit card, they're going to get pleasure shopping, but the pain is going to be 30 days later. And if we reduce the pain 30 days later by making it pay the minimum amount, we'll extend that pain over months. Mm. But they're not going to associate that with that shopping. Mm -hmm. They're going to associate that later. And then they're going to beat themselves up, which then they're going to want to go and avoid that. And we're going to go shopping to feel good again. And so they know that if they separate pleasure from pain, they get the amygdala online and it wants quick fix, not long-term mastery. And so it becomes an addictive habit. Now it's shopping. The average person stores 10% of their entire, whatever they make in a year, if they make 50000 a year, they have $5,000 on debt running a big debt. And so they're constantly paying compound interest on debt instead of compound interest on assets. And they get into an addictive behavior of, I got I to gotta shop. I got to fill my house with stuff. And then they spend a quarter of the money on their house storing stuff that goes down in value. Yeah. And they do the same thing in their body. They put 25% of their food is unnecessary and they put it in their body. And this is basically because we've separated pain and pleasure. So if I take somebody that's getting a pleasure out of eating and stop on that spot while they're eating it, what's the downside? They're unaware of it. And if I go and have them close their eyes and get present, I can associate all the pains and downsides in that. And all of a sudden, the taste of that food changes. And their their, their ghrelin and leptin change right on the spot. Because if they see pleasure with that pain, the subjective bias accentuates that, and you've got to have more. Mm-hmm. And it goes into a drama. But the second they actually associate the pain with that, and then the pain, the pleasure on the other side, when they don't have food, when they're in pain and they're going, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a moment in my life that sucks, or I've got a, a, a subdiction here. What's the pleasures? If I find the pleasures of the subdiction and the pains of the addiction, and I put them simultaneously, I guarantee it'll calm down. It's amazing watching it. Yeah, it's that tangent that you went on was brilliant because it reminded me of a study that I read a few years ago of when we pay cash, there's an actual brain response that in the pain center of the brain. And so the sep- the movement to credit card was, yeah, as you just described, to remove that pain response. When you pay with cash, you're more cautious, you're not impulsive, you're thinking things out more rationally. And if you go there with an agenda and a strategy for shopping over really the highest priority actions that are really required for your mastery of life, you're less likely to be impulsive. But the salespeople are always trying to get you to buy things. You know, I, I, I'm probably the most frustrating person a salesperson ever met because <laughs> I already know what I'm going to get. And no matter what they say, it's not going to alter it. <laughs> I already know what I'm going for. And they, I go, you know, you can, you can spin your wheels, but I'm going to ask you a simple question. Do you have this? No, thank you very much. I'm out of here. I already know what I want. And people who don't know what they want and don't decide what they want, let other people let them know what they want. Mm-hmm. And that's where impulse purchasing and impulse eating comes from. And the smells, you know, when they, there's cinnamon shops and malls, right? That have sugar and cinnamon smelling off, you know, and people go, oh my God, I got to have that, whatever that is. And that's impulse. That's an animal impulse. That's nothing more than a, a Pavlodian reflex that you've made after yourself because you assume there's a pleasure without a pain. Mm-hmm. But then there's always, oh my God, I feel guilty. And then, you, but you're not set. You're separating them. It's when you put those together that you actually have governance over yourself again. The second you separate pain and pleasure, you automatically give your amygdala the power. The second you put them back together again, you give your executive center the power because you're now objective, not subjective. Using the method that you just talked about before with rewiring that woman's eating habits, could you do the same thing to rewire the pain response to the to your credit card? Yep, same thing. Yeah, yeah, great. What I do is actually go in there buying it. What's the downside? They can't see any. Look again. Why? Why I know this? When I was 23 years old, I started writing a book. 24, I, I finished it up on the illusional basis of men's health and disease. It was how perceptual illusions led to vicious cycles and dramatizing cycles that lead to runaway physiology mm-hmm. and illness and entropy breakdown. And I, I, I realized that nobody ever perceives something without a contrast. And Wilhelm Wandt, who is a father of psychology, mm-hmm. said that there were sequential contrasts and simultaneous contrasts. Sequential contrasts led to the amygdala and simultaneous contrasts led to the executive function. Mm-hmm. And one led to feeling and emotion and one led to rational, meaningful actions and uh, logic. 
And so if you see both sides simultaneously by asking, they're there, but you're unconscious of it. Because when you're infatuated, you're unconscious of the downside. When you're resentful, you're unconscious of the upside. So anytime you associate a pleasure without a pain, you're lying to yourself. Mm -hmm. Or a pain without a pleasure, you're lying to yourself. Because everybody's had a thing they thought was terrible in a day, a week, a month, a year, or five years later, they look back and they go, thank God that occurred. Yeah. But you didn't have that. You had the wisdom of the ages with the aging process. The key is to have the wisdom of the ages without the aging process. And the aging process is nothing more than the separation of pain and pleasure in the human mind. Out of curiosity, dissolving that uh, either the overwhelming negative or the overwhelming positive in a situation and neutralizing it, does that make life underwhelming because you don't have these these highs and lows, these peaks and troughs? No. You're, you're, whenever you got a perfect equilibrium, I've been teaching the breakthrough experience 1,135 times around the world, 66 countries, mm-hmm. 100,000 people I've taken through there. When I show them the science of this and take them through this, they transform polarized emotions where they're ungoverned. Because when you're infatuated, you can hardly sleep at night. You're preoccupied by it. When you're resentful, you can hardly sleep at night. You're preoccupied by it. You're run externally by misperceptions. But when you actually balance those, you bring out gratitude because you see a hidden order in what's happening. Mm-hmm. Love, because love is a synthesis of these pairs, right? When you infatuate somebody, you're not in love with them. When you're resentful, somebody, you're not in love with them. When you love them, you see both sides. And when you're grateful and loving, you're also more inspired because you realize nothing's running you and stopping you now. You're not distracted. You're grateful. You're loving. You're inspired. You're now enthused. Enthusiasm, as St. Augustine said, was where the will of God was equilibrium. When the will of man matches the will of God, he's graced by the presence of the divine. That was a theological feeling. So you're really inspired. And you're more certain, not wavering with emotion. Mm -hmm. And you're more present. Because you've extracted out space and time for the mind, separating pain and pleasure. Anytime you separate pain and pleasure in time and space, you get the existential illusion. The second you integrate it back, you're in the essence of your own being. So you end up with more gratitude, more love, more inspiration, more enthusiasm, more presence, and more certainty, and it gives you leadership, and it gets your executive center functioning. And those are people that go and lead and do amazing things because they have self-governance. So you're not going to be indifferent. You're not going to be flat. You're going to be inspired. And I've taken people through and I've demonstrated and proven it to them. And I've asked them, if you have a choice between this new state and that the high you got, which one's really more powerful? Every single case, they'll say what I'm, I just experienced this inspired state. Way more fulfilling than immediate gratifications eating something. Yeah. And, and so I guess for all of the listeners that are loving what you're talking about and resonating with what you're saying and knowing they might need to dive into this stuff, where can they find you online, your courses, your programs, your work? Well, to find me, it's simply just go to Dr. Demartini, uh, D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. And on there, they can do a value determination process to help them be more objective and clear on what really is important in their life. It's free. It's complimentary. It's private. Uh, the value determination process. Or they can just go on and go on the media. There is literally hundreds of radio, television, newspaper, mag- magazine, podcasts on there that they can just learn from. There's YouTube videos, there's live programs, there's products if they want them. You know, they could they could spend the rest of their life. They're almost going to have to be a Buddhist believing in reincarnation just to keep up with what goes on in my website. They're <laughs> going to they're going to keep busy for the rest of their lives. Well, it's a very good way to keep busy, I would say. <laughs> Um, so I just want to uh, thank as well and send out some gratitude to Emmanuel Anthony that is one of the Demartini Method facilitators whom was kind enough to put me in touch with you and, and I did a show with him on mental health and we talked a little bit about depression and suicide on episode 123 of this show. Um, John, I'm so grateful for your time and your energy and sharing your wisdom with myself and the audience. And just before we wrap up, I would just love to ask you, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Well. Everybody who's maybe listening to this right now, tonight, go stand in front of the mirror, whether you're in clothes or not, and say, no matter what I've done or not done, I'm worthy of love. And don't stop saying that until it really goes in. Because as long as you compare yourself to other people and put them on pedestals or pits and don't put them in your heart, you're not going to put yourself in your heart. It's time to. Because when you appreciate who you are, as you are, and not compare yourself to others, but compare your daily actions to what's meaningful to you, that's when you start to really appreciate and love the magnificence of who you are 
and the contributions you make as a unique individual. We're not here to live in anybody's shadows or be second at being somebody else. We're here to be first at being ourselves. And the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you impose on yourself. So no matter what I've done or not done, I'm worthy of love. Start loving yourself, appreciating yourself for your magnificence. That's a beautiful way to wrap up. Thank you so much, John. And for everybody listening, all of John's links and, and everything you need to access the, the value system and his programs and books will all be in the show notes below. So just scroll down once you're done here and jump into more of John's content. John, thank you so much for your time. I'm very grateful and I would. there's always an open invitation to come back and have more conversations. So thank you for being here. Anytime. Anytime. Just let us know. Love to. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks so much, John. See you later. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.